This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Arenas. And I'm April Glazer. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the morning of Tuesday, April 24th. Recording a little earlier than usual today because a famous band, which we are not allowed to name, is using our normal recording studio for their dressing room today. On today's show, we will talk about a somewhat surprising speech from the antitrust chief of Trump's DOJ. We'll bring you up to date on a big new data privacy bill in Congress. And we'll bring in Mike Nunez, a journalist from Mashable, whose reporting on alleged liberal bias at Facebook has sparked a somewhat bizarre congressional inquiry. Later, we'll be joined by law professor Mary Ann Franks. She teaches at the University of Miami Law School on criminal, First Amendment law, and technology policy. We'll be talking about the massively important Communications Decency Act, which was just amended to allow victims of sex trafficking to sue websites that knowingly facilitate it. And as usual, we will end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of our favorite stories we saw on the web this week. Okay, another week and more Facebook news. (laughs) Just what we wanted. Uh, Will, how are you doing? I'm doing well. You're right. The Facebook news just won't quit. But first, we want to talk about an intriguing speech given by a Trump DOJ official at the University of Chicago last week. That Trump Department of Justice official is Makan Del Rahim. He is the country's top antitrust officer, and he gave the keynote address at the University of Chicago's Antitrust and Competition Conference. It's not normally a huge newsmaking event on the tech world's calendar, but Del Rahim focused on the big platforms like Facebook and Google and Amazon, and he focused specifically on the question of whether they've grown to a level of dominance that's harming competition and maybe harming consumers, too. He made the case for what he called evidence-based enforcement, which uh, was an interesting notion there. Will, what did you make of it? It was an interesting speech, and I thought it was probably most noteworthy for the fact that he really does seem interested in and open to the idea of viewing these tech platforms with a little more antitrust scrutiny than they've gotten in the past. Um, Bloomberg reporting on it called it a warning shot at the technology giants. He said he is actively looking for evidence that some of these platforms may be concentrating power in a way that is shutting out competitors. So he didn't mention all the specifics, but you could imagine, for instance, the way that Facebook has copied Snapchat's products in order to keep its stranglehold on social networking the fact that it has bought up Instagram and WhatsApp. So he's watching, he's paying attention. But at the same time, he didn't seem like he was in a big hurry. His call for evidence-based enforcement seemed like he was saying, we don't have evidence yet that they actually are harming competition. And he hasn't heard people make the case persuasively to him that consumers are really being harmed here. 
This was an incredibly uh, important conversation that Delrahim started because we just haven't seen uh, antitrust really address the massive size of these companies that have gotten so big over the years without really any competition enforcement over them, you know, in the past at least a decade. And, you know, if he doesn't think that it's time to regulate these companies now or it's time to address their anti-competitiveness now, then he might really think so in the future. Because one of the things that has allowed these companies to balloon into such, you know, big giants is that they are collecting so much data on people, right? We're talking about uh, essentially advertising companies, which are Facebook and Google, which are two of the most powerful companies in the world. You know, Microsoft also collects data. Amazon collects data. These big companies collect data. And you know, they're all moving towards more AI. And for AI to work well, it requires a lot of data, right? For AI to be more intuitive and to be better product, it requires a lot of data. Well, who has all that data? Who has the leg up in that space? These companies that have been collecting it on us for over a decade. And so, okay, maybe he's reticent now. He's not seeing the evidence now, but there might be a case to be made to act before it gets real bad. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Will? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there have been a lot of of critics of our hands-off antitrust policy calling for a more aggressive approach. One of them we had on this show in in one of our earlier episodes, Lena Khan, and Delrahim actually specifically mentioned Lena Khan's work. She uh, has written about Amazon's uh, uh, concentration of market power. Really recommend that paper for folks. Yeah, we'll link yeah, to a, it. It's a great paper, um, and and he noted it not entirely approvingly, but he noted it as an example of the type of new thinking about these sort of platforms that is required uh, to apply uh, antitrust. Uh, standards to them. He did, though, indicate that he's not going to be, he's not going to go wild here. I mean, he's a conservative at heart. He said, we need to be humble. Antitrust is not going to be the solution to uh, market concentration. He said, just the fact that these companies are big is not a reason to take aggressive antitrust action. We have to look at whether they are, in fact, harming consumers, first of all, whether they're stifling innovation and maybe different business models, like, you know, is Facebook stifling the potential for a social network? network that doesn't harvest all our data. Um, so he wanted to look at it from that standpoint. Um, but he is also wary of, of the idea that antitrust can solve the problems of size and concentration in the internet industry. And so I don't think we're going to see, you know, I don't think we're going to see a sea change immediately, but it does sound, it, you know, it sounds like there's definitely that shift in tone that we've been talking about uh, across the episodes of our show. Well, to fix this broken industry, it's probably going to take a constellation of things. Antitrust may very well be one of them. It might also take some legislation from Congress. And that is something that we saw a proposal for today, specifically about online data collection. We uh, saw a bill that was uh, dropped from Senator Amy Klobuchar, a Democrat from Minnesota, as well as Senator Kennedy, a Republican from Louisiana, that would regulate how companies like Facebook and Google handle our online data and kind of the rights that we have to get that data back and to know what they're collecting on us or to ask them to stop. Yeah, I like it that it comes from from Klobuchar and Kennedy. They're obviously on on opposite sides of the partisan aisle. Klobuchar, we know from the Honest Ads Act, which was which is a, a piece of legislation we've talked about a lot on the show. Uh, and Kennedy was the one. Uh, he's he's been great in these congressional hearings. He's the senator from Louisiana who said to Mark Zuckerberg, "I don't want to regulate you, but God, by God, I will if I have to." And now he's now here he is trying to do it. He's he's certainly been a character 
in these hearings and uh, and a strong voice from the right uh, as in terms of, you know, what types of congressional action can be taken to get these companies to actually, you know, not be hurting consumers, as it can be argued that they have been, particularly with regard to Facebook's Cambridge Analytica scandal, where we learned that the company allowed for tens of millions, like uh, something along the lines of 87 million, but it could be way more, Facebook users' data to spill out and, in, and land in the hands of Republican operatives that then use that data to, to hyper-target to us in the 2016 election. You know, thousands of more uh, different apps and, and developers could have done the same thing that Cambridge Analytica did, and that data could very well be on the black market. And that's one of the things that this bill that was proposed today would address, not necessarily stopping a data spill or, or some sort of data breach, because that seems to just be part of the reality of, of being on the internet now, but, but rather change the notification requirements. Because when Facebook first learned about the Cambridge Analytica mess in 2015, they didn't tell users about it. Right. They they just kind of asked for Cambridge Analytica to stop doing that and destroy the data. Turns out they didn't. And so now Klobuchar and Kennedy are proposing that if a company mishandles users' personal data, that they alert people within 72 hours of it happening. This type of data breach notification is not something that we have in the U.S. right now. And uh, and it really could put companies on alert to uh, to to be more responsible in the first place. Right. Yeah, and I was curious your thoughts. I mean, we'll obviously learn more about this bill in the coming days and weeks. Uh, does it seem like a, a promising approach to you on first glance? I did think that it was a pretty good shot at at what needs to be done here, at least in, as, as far as I could tell from my initial analysis this morning. I got to read it and wrote a piece on it, and it does address some of the things that I think do need to be hit, like, you know, notifying people when their data is mishandled, also giving users the opportunity to see the data that's collected on them and know who that data has been given to. Uh, you know, it also says that uh, users need to have clear terms about how their data is used. And, you know, also if people then don't want to uh, engage with their or have their data rather engaged in the way the companies are doing it, then, you know, people can leave the company and they can't really demand that the company, you know, do something other than that, but but they can stop using it. But just, you know, having that more information is going to give people kind of control over how their lives work online, which is something that we just don't have control over because, We've come to depend on these companies and we don't know how they work. And because of that, we we don't really have any freedom over how we use the products that we've come to depend on. Yeah, it's all just been left in the hands of the companies until now. Um, I, I agree. It's good to see this type of legislation. It'll be very interesting to watch whether the tech companies jump on board. They had indicated they might be open to some kind of privacy legislation. But it's one thing to say that in theory. It's another thing to actually get behind a bill like this and support it. So we'll check that out. Uh, one one note is that I think there are lots of state laws requiring notifications of data breaches. Uh, we just don't have any federal law requiring. Yeah, it. yeah, we don't want, and we don't want the federal law to be weaker than the state laws that are out there. So I mean, this is going to be a very complicated dance to get this right. But it's very heartening to see legislatures taking a proactive approach on this, at least in my opinion, and. Uh, and I'm I'm happy to see a bipartisan approach as well. Again, this is just my first glance at this. There might be some, you know, big loopholes that I didn't catch. We're going to keep analyzing these proposals as they come out. But uh, it's good that this conversation has taken a very productive turn. 
But now we want to turn to yet another angle of the Facebook saga. It's one that hasn't gotten as much attention lately, but you're about to hear about it if you haven't already. It involves the words diamond and silk. That's right. Facebook is the subject of yet another congressional hearing this week. The Republican leaders of the House Judiciary Committee have called the pro-Trump video bloggers Diamond and Silk to testify on allegations of political bias in Facebook's news feed and content moderation policies. Will, what exactly is going on here? Why are they being called to Congress? All right. So this is this is going to be an interesting sort of uh, sideshow to the congressional hearings that Mark Zuckerberg appeared in. Uh, earlier this month. Diamond and Silk are two women from North Carolina. They're black. They're vehemently pro-Trump. In Trump's own words, they are, quote, two truly fantastic women. They have accused Facebook of trying to censor their content uh, on the social network. They're actually extremely popular there. They have a huge following. But they've seen their reach decline in recent months, as have many other publishers and creators on Facebook. And at one point, they got a message from Facebook telling them that they had had content removed because it had been deemed unsafe. Uh, That, of course, has conservatives up in arms. They are running with the idea that pro-Trump content is considered unsafe by Facebook. This came up in the hearings when Senator Ted Cruz pressed Mark Zuckerberg on why this happened. He actually did not have a good explanation. He said it was an error by Facebook's moderators. But this all stems from a a prominent strand in conservative pro-Trump quarters about Facebook. And they're concerned right now not so much with data privacy and the Cambridge Analytica data leak. They're concerned with the idea that Facebook is biased against conservatives and has been for years. And we're fortunate to have here with us today the person who's to blame for all of this. Right, Mike? (laughs) Uh, You could say that, sure. This is Mashable's deputy tech editor, Michael Nunez. He wrote a story in 2016 for Gizmodo that uh, alleged liberal bias among the contractors who were in charge of Facebook's trending news section. This was a great story by Mike, a great scoop. In some ways, I think it was the first crack in the facade of Facebook as this neutral platform where all ideas are treated equally. Uh, But Mike had this great follow-up in Mashable recently where he said that uh, conservative leaders like Ted Cruz, who are are running with that story, are missing the point. His headline was, I wrote the Facebook report that Ted Cruz can't stop talking about. He's getting it all wrong. Mike, what exactly is Ted Cruz getting all wrong? Well, so I think, you know, the one thing that Ted Cruz is getting right is that um, is that he should be thinking about why things are presented uh, to him or other people on Facebook. So it's important to think about why things are showing up in your newsfeed. Um, the issue that he's getting wrong is that people are actively suppressing conservative news on the regular. Like they're like, you know, he's basically accused Facebook of having some institutionalized um, goal to suppress conservative news. And that's just not one, what I had written in 2016. And two, that's not the reality of how, how Facebook operates. I think um, what he should be focusing on is how these algorithms work. And, and also he should be focusing on um, around creating greater transparency in the algorithm. So when something shows up in your newsfeed, you should have a better understanding of why you're seeing that thing. Without that level of transparency, I think Facebook becomes a tool for emotional manipulation. You know that this is why there's so much outrage on Facebook and why um, why there's so much divisiveness. I think um, it's because there's no real understanding as to um, as to why we're seeing different pieces of content in the newsfeed. And the one silver bullet for this problem, I think, would be to give people a better understanding of why they're seeing each piece of content in the newsfeed. 
All right. So do you buy Mark Zuckerberg's explanation and Facebook's explanation that this was just an innocent mistake where where Diamond and Silk got this message saying that their content was unsafe? Or is there potentially a real issue here where, uh, you know, certain conservative views or pro-Trump views might be considered by other Facebook users as uh, hate speech or as as assaults or otherwise violations of, of Facebook's policies? Well, I think... I, I do believe that they that they made a mistake and they probably don't have the tools in place to um, actually handle these kind of complaints. Um, and I think this is part of the ongoing discussion about how Facebook is supposed to handle this stuff. You know, it. I think um, for a long time we were told, again, that Facebook was a neutral platform, that all ideas were created equally and that everyone's voice should be heard. I think what ended up happening is that because the the product was built around increasing engagement at all costs, people were no longer seeing things that they were interested in or that they liked or that they generally agreed with. In fact, they started seeing things that made them enraged or that provoked them in a certain way that that made them give all of their attention to Facebook. And, and, uh, you know, uh, basically the algorithm started presenting more and more people with things that they couldn't ignore. And so in the case of Diamond and Silk, I think that it's uh, it's fairly reasonable to, to think that people started seeing this that maybe were either offended by what they were saying or um, in some way provoked by by um, by their comments and uh, and and that's sort of the the problem that Facebook has created for itself over time it's the idea that engagement you know for a long time people assumed that engagement equaled happiness now I think Facebook is having to walk back a lot of these uh, a lot of these systems that they've created and diamond and silk are just sort of a casualty of an ongoing problem that Facebook is 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 trying desperately to solve, but they can't seem to find the solution to. So you wrote this piece in 2016 where you talked to these sources anonymously at Facebook who said that they're actually, you know, they do bring their uh, political values t- into play when they make decisions about what people see in the trending news section. Facebook kind of freaked out over this. I mean, first the right freaked out and and thought of this as as evidence of systemic bias against conservatives on Facebook. And then Facebook freaked out because they didn't want to lose conservatives uh, and and, uh, you know, ever since then, there's been uh, this, it seems like Facebook has been bending over backwards to try to, to make sure that nobody perceives them as having any bias. But do you ever look back on that story? I mean, when you look back on it today, do you, do you see it in a different light than you did at the time? I think that's a great question. I do not see it in a different light. In fact, you know, it was a, it was a difficult story to write because a lot of the things that um, that we had concluded were... Um, were uh, were basically went against a lot of the things that I stood for. So I'm not a pro-Trump voter. You know, my my dad. I, I mentioned this online a couple of times, but like my dad is an illegal immigrant. There there are plenty of reasons for me um, not to like Trump and also to have buried the story. But um, but I think what was really interesting to me was the misrepresentation um, of the trending newsfeed that that Facebook had done up until this point. So there was a really big piece in Recode um, that was supposed to be the definitive story on how trending worked. Well, that story now has a gigantic editor's note at the top because it was completely wrong. Facebook had led the journalists to believe that algorithms were sorting through the newsfeed when, in fact, we discovered that uh, that you know, young recent graduates were very actively choosing what people were allowed to see and what they weren't allowed to see. Um, and then also, you know, the, the other big takeaway for me that that stands to this day is that 
people need to have a better understanding of how algorithms are shaping our everyday lives. And I think um, in many people's minds, they just sort of chalked up the word algorithm to like the idea that computers were sorting this out. And it's like, oh yeah, the computer will take care of it. The reality is that algorithms are basically just weighted math problems. You know, they're not necessarily all that sophisticated. And in the case of trending news, we found that this was a, a very elementary math problem and uh, gave preference to some things and it discriminated against other things. And the idea being that um, we need to have a better understanding of who is making these decisions and how they're being made, um, because bias can enter algorithms relatively easily. So I think one way to combat this problem would be to have greater diversity at a lot of these tech companies. You know, you can fight racial bias by including more minorities um, on the staff of the people that are that are creating these algorithms. You can fight gender bias by including by by having a greater um, diversity of staff again. And so, um, you know, that's, of course, just like one step towards solving this. And I think another would be literacy. People need to have a better understanding of what algorithms are, how they work, and um, and should be should have a much greater investment in how these things are sorting through all of this information um, for us and, and basically um, have a better understanding of the systems that we trust with so much of our personal lives. All right. So so maybe the immediate subject of this week's congressional hearing, the idea that Facebook is systematically censoring conservative views is misguided. But there is this real issue that uh, Mike Nunez has helped to highlight where there is always going to be bias and value judgments implicit in the products that companies like Facebook make. Mike Nunez, uh, deputy tech editor for Mashable, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, so that's going to do it for our news segment. And remember, we have the interview coming up with Mary Ann Franks. Before that, I wanted to make a quick clarification on something I said last week. I was talking about Zillow's plan to start getting into the business of buying and selling homes itself. The way I portrayed it might have made it seem like Zillow will be buying just any home that's on the market and maybe competing with buyers who are on the Zillow marketplace. That's not quite correct, and I wanted to clarify that. Zillow will only buy homes when the seller has specifically asked Zillow to give them an instant offer on that home. So it's actually the seller's choice to let Zillow get into the market and maybe buy a home that they want to sell quickly without having to wait for a different buyer. And with that, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Professor Mary Ann Franks. Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
So just a little context before we start our interview with Professor Mary Ann Franks, we're going to be talking about legislation that was just signed into law by Trump, the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, also known as CESTA, and the Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, known as FOSTA. Those bills chip away at a foundational internet law called the Communications Decency Act, which we'll unpack a bit more in the interview. They were signed into a law on April 11th and were passed by the House and Senate earlier this year. Our guest today is Professor Mary Ann Franks. She is a professor of law at the University of Miami Law School, where Franks teaches criminal, First Amendment law, and technology policy. She wrote the first criminal statute to address the non-consensual sharing of private sexually explicit images, what is more commonly referred to as revenge porn. She has helped to draft legislation to combat this problem and sits as the tech policy director and on the board of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. Franks also works on privacy and abuse issues with some of the biggest tech companies that we talk about often on the show, Twitter, Google, Facebook, and Microsoft, and is the co-producer of the 2015 Netflix documentary film Hot Girls Wanted, which explores the professional amateur porn industry. And to top all of that off, Marianne Franks has a book coming out this year, The Cult of Constitution, Guns, Speech, and the Internet. Professor Franks, welcome to If Then. Thank you for having me. Let's start this conversation with the basics. Trump signed a new bill into law that chips away at a bedrock piece of Internet policy. Uh, He just did this a couple weeks ago, and it's the law that prevents websites from being liable for what their users post. It's specifically a section of the Communications Decency Act, Section 230. And the law was amended to allow victims of sex trafficking and prosecutors that are trying such cases to go after websites that knowingly facilitate sex trafficking. It was a contentious push to pass the amendment to the CDA, the Communications Decency Act. But before we get into why it was contentious and why it was such a fight, let's talk about why the Communications Decency Act is so important and, you know, kind of its history in terms of founding the Internet. Sure. So Section 230 has a fascinating history because it was written in 1996, and it was this complicated moment where people were extremely excited about the Internet and the possibilities that it was going to provide. And at the same time, people were extremely nervous about the possibilities that the Internet was going to provide. So on the one hand, you had members of Congress who were extremely concerned about obscenity and essentially things having to do with sexually graphic uh, imagery reaching children. There were a lot of concerns about what the internet was going to do for uh, parents' ability to be able to control what their kids could see. And so there was this real push to try to impose a kind of decency um, code on the internet. And that's where the, the decency part of the Communications Decency Act comes from. But that was also really unpopular because a lot of people felt that it was vital that we actually make sure that the internet is not overly regulated. And so Section 230 was the piece of this legislation that was intended to push back on that pro-regulation effort and to really open up a lot of space for people to innovate and use the internet in ways that really nobody could predict was, was going to be used yet and give them a lot of leeway and effectively say the kinds of things you could do online and the kinds of things that you could facilitate online won't be treated the same way that we would if they were happening offline. The kinds of liability that you might face for defamation or other types of bad behavior or content 
we're going to basically protect internet intermediaries from that so that they can innovate and experiment and see what happens. Right. And so uh, now we're uh, in, a, in an area where we're starting to chip away at some of that armor, right? So, so you know, in this, the Communications Decency, I kind of gave investors the um, the confidence to pour a lot of money into these early internet companies because they knew that they wouldn't get sued for, you know, all the crazy things that millions of users could post, you know, in real time. Uh, that's starting to be chipped away with this new law. Can you explain what the new law is and, and what the sex trafficking part of it is? It seems like it's it's a very specific piece, but, but the whole internet uh, advocacy community was up in arms about it. They were up in arms about it. And then uh, uh, quite a few of its most powerful members were no longer up in arms about it, which is kind of an interesting story in itself. But it it is really interconnected with this question of what the CDA 230 actually says versus what courts think it says, and then what the public thinks that it says. It's actually a pretty common misunderstanding that Section 230 provides kind of blanket immunity for online activity. It does provide for some, but there's a very careful carve-out in Section 230 itself, where the the statute makes clear that violations of federal criminal law, for instance, will not get some sort of um, special defense. So if you are engaging in some kind of kidnapping scheme or child pornography, you're not going to be able to say, oh, I'm immune because I'm online. And there was also, it also seems to be the case based on the way the statute was written, that it was primarily about letting online intermediaries make their own choices about how to edit. That is to say, it was really about allowing them to intervene against Mm. certain types of content. It was meant to be the so-called Good Samaritan provision was there to say, if you don't like you being an intermediary like Facebook or Google or whatever the case may be, if you don't like some of the content that's on your site and you want to take it down, we actually want to protect you from being sued on that basis. We don't want people dragging you into court saying, keep my child porn up there or keep my offensive commentary up there. So there's at least one school of thought that says that's really what Section 230 was doing, was not providing blanket immunity. It was providing immunity to those who were acting in good faith to keep really bad stuff away from consumers. But the way that it's been interpreted is that whether you're doing something good or whether you're doing something bad or whether you're being largely indifferent, you should nonetheless get all the protections of Section 230. And so that's been the piece of it that many advocates have been trying to say is not great and that we should really go back to the original sense of good faith interventions as opposed to having this blanket protection. But what FOSTA does is something kind of unusual. Those who actually support the idea of amending Section 230 or interpreting it a little bit narrowly are not crazy about FOSTA because it takes a very peculiar approach to the problems of Section 230. And it says, essentially, we're going to take one specific type of abuse or one specific type of uh, troubling conduct, namely sex trafficking, and we're going to say that whatever Section 230 does do in terms of providing immunity will not apply for this specific crime and no other. So it's a very strange approach even to those people who would have thought it's a good idea to rethink some of those broad provisions. Most people would agree that taking this particular piecemeal approach is not the best way to handle those deficiencies in Section 230. So just to back up a little bit, when we're talking about intermediaries, you mentioned Google and Facebook. 
I assume YouTube, um, maybe Napster at some point. What, what exactly are we talking about when we're talking about online intermediaries that are that are protected by the Section 230 provision? That's a terrific question because that's one of the more difficult aspects of figuring out what Section 230 does is that the term online intermediaries gets used even though that's not what the statute says. The statute has a term um, that's interactive computer service. And the definition that's provided there is it's any information service system or access software provider that provides or enables computer access by multiple users to a computer server. So that's a pretty complicated definition. And then it contrasts that particular definition with a so-called information content provider, which the statute defines as any person or entity responsible in whole or in part for the creation or development of information provided through the internet. So I think that the the plain reading of the statute is that we're trying to set up a distinction between people who are creating content, whether that's a comment or whether that's an image or whether that's um, a story or a song, versus the people or the entities that are providing platforms of access. So it's pretty straightforward that Facebook is an interactive computer service that's allowing information content providers, that is all of us who are on Facebook, to share information. Okay, so if I'm Slate and I'm producing content for the internet, I can still be held responsible for the stuff I'm putting up there. But if Facebook uh, ends up with a Slate article on it, Facebook under Section 230, the idea is that they're not going to get sued for what Slate published. That has largely been how it's been interpreted, yes. And I think that it's actually quite important to keep in mind that none of these things are obvious because there there's a lot of legal questions we could ask about who counts as an interactive computer service and at what point do you stop being an interactive computer service and you start being an information content provider. And some of the most interesting Section 230 cases are about that the, the intersection of those two because, of course, we can imagine that plenty of people and entities that are online are performing some functions of both. You are both providing access in a kind of intermediary function, but you're also creating some of your own content. And so then it gets really tricky to decide, well, which role are we looking at more uh, more seriously here in terms of trying to interpret your protections under Section 230? So before we get back to the sex trafficking part, I want to understand the implications of 230 because, you know, it's not just uh, illegal things that uh, companies have been allowed to look the other way on, but also just kind of abusive things, right? So we've seen a lot of hate speech proliferate on these platforms and a lot of inaction from these platforms when it comes to policing that speech. Uh, we've seen, you know, Nazis gr- Nazi groups allowed to congregate for years, uh, all, all kinds of things that have really bubbled into uh somewhat disturbing communities that we've seen spill offline now. And Section 230, it seems, has kind of allowed for these companies to look the other way while their platforms are used uh, for for this type of organizing. That seems right. And that's the real concern that many advocates have about the way that Section 230 is being used, that we're not just talking about, again, if we go back to that Good Samaritan idea of saying, let's take a kind of hands-off approach uh, to this, because there's a piece of Section 230 that says hands-off approach for the civil liability, which is a very specific thing, if you're trying to help your users or you're trying to uh, improve the experience by getting rid of obscene or otherwise harmful content versus the other part of Section 230, which gets used a lot, which is that we're not going to treat the interactive computer service providers as we just were discussing. We're not going to treat them as though they were content providers. So it's the mix of those two where everything gets kind of interesting and also very troubling. And when we think about incentives from the perspective of a major social media platform, 
if it's now the interpretation that you will not essentially be held accountable in any way, civilly or criminally, for really terrible stuff that happens on your platform, well, then the incentive for you to do anything about that content goes away, which would seem to run counter exactly to that Good Samaritan idea of wanting to deregulate so that people and entities online could actually do more regulation on their own. So it sounds like FOSTA-SESTA, the Sex Trafficking Act, was a was it a sort of compromise where they're trying to keep intact the basics of this protection for online service providers while making sure that they can't host uh, sex trafficking uh, ads and, and facilitate sex trafficking in particular. But why wasn't that already illegal? Why were these sites, I think Backpage.com is one that's commonly cited where there were these these ads that facilitated sex trafficking. Why was that allowed in the first place? And then I guess the second part of that question is, if that's the only thing we're making illegal, does this does this law actually in some ways sort of reify the rest of the immunity that, that Section 230 has been interpreted to confer on these providers? Yeah. So one one really confusing aspect of this is that in the conversations about FOSTA and the supposedly demonstrating the need for this particular uh, amendment, it was almost as though there were claims being made that, well, there's no other way to get it. Uh, companies like Backpage, if you don't amend Section 230. But that's not true. And it was pretty obvious that that wasn't true. And we saw that there are these federal charges that were filed against Backpage um, before FOSTA was even signed. So there's that, as I mentioned at the beginning, there's this big carve out in Section 230 that says you can't use a Section 230 defense against a violation of federal criminal law. And sex trafficking is, in fact, uh, a violation of federal criminal law. So there was plenty of room for law enforcement to do uh, plenty of things, even around Section 230, because of the determination made about the importance of still pursuing criminal prosecutions for federal criminal law purposes. So that's one piece of it. But the other big piece of the Backpage question is that much of the litigation around Backpage had to do with victims themselves, um, people who claimed that they were harmed directly by Backpage's practices, wanting to bring civil suits and try to recover damages. So girls who were trafficked and prostituted or beaten or raped were trying to bring civil actions in order to get some sort of recovery in that sense, and they couldn't do that because of Section 230. So there is a sense in which if you're trying to respond to that piece of it, that you do want to make it possible for there to be civil litigation by victims themselves and and be able to protect themselves or recover in that way, Section 230 was throwing up a kind of obstacle there because it was so heavily interpreted as being a bar to that kind of civil liability. So that piece of it was important. But to your point about you know making this about sex trafficking and making it seem as though especially since we've now got decades where we said Section 230 is untouchable, nothing, there's no bad thing in this world that is bad enough to make us go back and rethink online um, immunity. And then to say, except for this one thing, well, that's troubling in all kinds of ways, which is not to say that sex trafficking isn't very troubling. It is. Um, It's obviously a very serious kind of harm. But yes, there's plenty of other really serious harms, you know, ranging from revenge porn to doxing to um, sextortion to hate speech that actually leads to incitement to violence. There's any number of problems that you could say uh, are created by or facilitated by online immunity in this interpretation of Section 230. So there seems to be little justification to say, well, this one kind of crime we're going to say is serious enough to actually intervene. That just seems like a not very uh, it's it's not a very well-theorized approach to what the problems are created by Section 230. It's instead a, a kind of 
um, I don't really want to say hysterical, but slightly hysterical reaction to this one type of crime and this impulse to say that it's so bad that we need to basically revamp everything that we knew about the Internet because of it. So this might not be the right fix for Section 230, which seems like it could use some kind of updating. That said, uh, Craigslist and, and other companies are reacting to this, saying that they have become vulnerable now that uh, they are liable for what is posted on their site, especially, you know, sites that operate in real time. It's hard to know if an ad goes up that, you know, is somehow uh being used to facilitate sex trafficking. The provision does say that the websites have to knowingly be engaged in this. Do you think, though, that the reaction to just shut down the personals and say that it's because they're, you know, now broadly liable is 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 correct? I think there's something slightly disingenuous about many of these companies that say, that make these dramatic gestures of saying, we're going to shut this down now. I mean, what we've seen in the past is that there's, there's no reason to think that profitable sex um, practices are going to go away just because there's some regulation here or there. I mean, we're talking about an industry that is largely prohibited officially, but somehow manages to survive all the same. So when when there's this reaction to say, well, we're going to shut down this one type of site, it usually pops up on some other type. So if you shut down personals, it ends up somewhere else. And I think that what a lot of these companies are doing is they're, they're playing with public opinion. And of course, they want to do that, right? Because these are companies that have done some pretty terrible things, which tends to get lost, I think, in some of the conversations around this, that, you know, if the the allegations against Backpage are true, we're talking about some pretty considerable active, not just indifferent, but active harm that they have done to, to children. And for them to be able to say, well, now we're being censored, we're going to take down all of these valuable sites, I think that that is a very disingenuous argument that they're making. Um, but the thing is, nobody really wants to be sued. Of course, there's no industry that welcomes that kind of oversight. And there's probably something to be said for trying to compare this industry, the sex industry with other industries that have also fought regulation and to see whether we think that their incentives are already correctly aligned or not. And if we look at something like the the, the gun industry that never wants to be sued over anything and was, and was able in 2005 to get federal legislation passed to protect it from all kinds of lawsuits, do we think that we've reached, in terms of uh, social costs and social benefits, have we reached an optimal level in terms of regulation? Because the good thing about lawsuits is that it makes companies more careful. The idea is if you have something to lose, you'll be more careful and have more incentives to make sure that your practices are ones that are legitimate and are actually doing something good for society as opposed to undermining it. So, of course, these industries are going to respond by saying we don't like lawsuits, we, we shouldn't be, we're going to be litigated out of existence. But there's obviously a pretty strong demand here for certain types of services. The question then is, can you conduct your business in a way that is responsible or at least not actively harmful to society at large? Now, a lot of the conversation around the passage of the amendment to CDA 230 uh, is about how sex workers are now going to be in danger uh, because they no longer have a place to post ads and kind of safely get business. And, you know, many, they're saying, are, are going to be forced to do street work uh, because the websites that used to host their, you know, their their ads and, and their posts are no longer uh, able to to do so and, and, are, and are shutting down. It seems like that may be the case, that it is going to be harder for sex workers to safely, you know, get work online. Uh, any Any comment on that? Well, th this is another reason why the sex trafficking and FOSTA conversation 
is maybe not the best conversation to have in terms of figuring out Section 230's relative merits. People have really strong feelings about sex trafficking, and there are a lot of stories that we can tell about what's good or bad for sex workers or for people who are working in the industry. There's one version of this, exactly as you say, that says, you know, this is going to make things less safe. And and that's, of course, a plausible story because the more something is brought out into the light, the more access people have to certain channels of communication, the more it is that they will be able to protect themselves. And that's certainly right. At the same time, there are many victims, and in fact, many victims who were really behind the push for reform on this issue to begin with, who have said, you know, it's because of sites like Backpage and Craigslist that I am not safe and that I was trafficked when I was 15 and it didn't make me safe. It got me raped or tortured. Or So I think we have to be very careful about thinking of victims or people who work in the sex industry as a monolith. There are obviously lots of stories we can tell. And for certain people, probably of certain class, um, I, I guess we could say, they might say that my access to the internet is what keeps me safe. There are plenty of people who have no real access to the internet in any meaningful sense, and so they're kind of stuck with this other way of doing sex work. And in some ways, what we're really having a conversation about is sex trafficking itself and about sex work itself, which clearly in federal law, there's a distinction, right? Sex trafficking is actually non-consensual behavior, except if it involves, involves children where we presume that it's not consensual. So to the objection that we're conflating consensual sex work and sex trafficking with FOSTA and other types of regulations... The answer, I think, should be that, no, there's a, there is a legal distinction between these two. If what we're really trying to say is that all prostitution and all sex work should be legal, that may be right and it may be a fair thing to say, but that's not the conversation that really should be happening with FOSTA because FOSTA is directed at sex trafficking. It seems like we really do need a full rethink of Section 230, and this piecewise approach might not be the best way to go about it. Uh, And it also seems like maybe a conversation about the legality of consensual uh, sex work is also in order, and uh, neither of those things are happening right now. I think we have to stop there. Professor Franks, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to take one last break, and then we'll have Don't Close My Tabs, where we share some of our favorites from the web this week. All right, April, what tab could you not close this week? So my tab is a California story. It's from KQED's California Report, and it is a story about how Sean Hannity began his path to punditry on Santa Barbara Community Radio. Uh, I really recommend people listen to this segment because it's a fascinating glimpse into kind of how he got started with his conservative commentary, insulting people, kind of being generally awful to folks that would call in. And uh, it really also illustrates how so many of the prominent far-right personalities, and Sean Hannity has very much been in the news in almost every corner of the the news over the past couple weeks, and even in some surprising ways uh, when it has to come to his real estate and, and who he chooses to have as his lawyer, Michael Cohen. A lot of these folks got their start doing local radio work and uh, and kind of this conservative radio uh, 
network that kind of loosely blanketed the country for a long time. Uh, he was part of that, but just on a community radio station in Santa Barbara. And it's kind of cool to or disturbing or interesting to uh, listen to some of his early clips. So I recommend people check that out. I did not know that Hannity was from uh, just down the street from where I am. I don't know if he's uh, from there, but that's where he got his start on the radio. (laughs) Okay, yeah. And I guess he at one point he lost his show on the UC Santa Barbara College radio station. I don't blame them. (laughs) (laughs) Will, uh, Will, what tab did you leave open this week? All right. The tab I could not close this week is from The Washingtonian. The headline is, here are the floor plans for Jeff Bezos's $23 million D.C. home. This was really clever and a little devious on the part of the Washingtonian. They went to, uh, they did a public records request with the local zoning board to get the blueprints for Bezos's $12 million renovation of his $23 million home in Washington, D.C.'s Kalorama district. Am I pronouncing that right? I, I don't know. I think so. Clearly, I'm not from D.C., but he had acquired, he had bought the former textile museum in Kalorama, uh, and that makes him neighbors with the Obamas, uh, with Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, uh, and now he is redoing it, and the plans call for, we have all the details, thanks to this public records request, they call for 25 bathrooms, 11 bedrooms, five living rooms and lounges, five staircases, three kitchens, two libraries, two workout rooms, two elevators, and a huge ballroom. Uh, I like the idea that you need 25 bathrooms in a house. Uh, you know, maybe, uh, I guess it could come in handy for a really big party. Yeah, no, I could definitely use about 10 more bathrooms. So, <laughs> like, I get it. That's great. The two elevators is is a fun detail as well. Somebody joked in our Slack channel that if you find yourself on the same elevator with Jeff Bezos himself, it's so you can duck out, run across the mansion, and get in the other elevator for a more comfortable ride. (laughs) Another uh, another bonus. That's uh, something that I've long wanted in my home. Yeah, so Bezos is clearly living large. I guess you could say from one point of view, he's earned it. Uh, he he came from humble backgrounds. Now he's super rich, and I guess he's going to enjoy it to the hilt. One other note about this is that Amazon is looking for a new headquarters. Three of the potential locations are in the D.C. area. Maybe this is a clue uh, about where they're headed next. And, you know... It- It's worth noting that Bezos does have a lot of money, but the people that work for him do not. It was reported this week or or, uh, last Wednesday, rather, that the median pay for Amazon employees was about $28,000 in 2017. Um, Just to make sense of that, that means that about half of Amazon's employees earned less than that amount. Uh, that is not that does not sound like a living wage to me. So, you know, Bezos sure is living large, but the people who work for him are not necessarily important to keep that in mind, too. Yeah, I guess if I'm working in one of those factory jobs, I'm saying to myself, hey, Jeff, couldn't you have gone with just 24 bathrooms? <laughs> Maybe paid me a little more money. Yeah, or something. Um, anyway, that does it for our show this week. And you can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. And send us your tech questions and shows and guest suggestions. Some of you already have, and thank you for that. So hi to those who have, and to those who haven't, please say hi to us. Yes, we love hearing from you. You can follow me and April on Twitter as well. April is at April Laser. I'm at Will Oremus. Thanks again to our guest, Professor Mary Ann Franks. You can follow her on Twitter at MA underscore Franks. And to Michael Nunez. He's at Michael F. Nunez. 
And leave us a comment and review on iTunes. We'd be forever grateful for that. It really helps boost our show and kind of gets our show out to more listeners. So thanks for those who have. And to those who haven't, thanks in advance. <laughs> yes, thanks in advance. I actually read all of, all of your iTunes reviews. So. I've never looked, but do it for Will. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> if Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is the great Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara. Thanks to Alberto Hernandez at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. We will see y'all next week. <laughs>